This episode of Inside Fashion is brought to you by NetSuite, which empowers fashion companies to deliver a strong omni-channel customer experience while streamlining back-end operations. Visit www.netsuite.com BOF to learn more. Activism has always been one of the things you really channel through the, the clothes that you create. I just use and abuse the voice that clothes have given me, really. I thought we can't carry on making clothes at the expense of human suffering and environmental degradation. So why don't we just slip in some things that really need to be talked about? Because, you know, we're selling out on clothes anyway. I mean, the thing that is, you know, driving this interest in sustainability now is the consumer's care. Even industry doesn't. I mean, the only thing that's going to fix it for industry is legislation. When you have these t-shirts that say cancel Brexit, what do you want to happen now? I think we have to have a second referendum. There's no good economic reason for Brexit. This idea that we can't change our minds is ridiculous. Hello, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. This week on Inside Fashion, we have a very special conversation with a fashion industry legend. Catherine Hamnett first hit the fashion scene way back in the 1960s when she studied at Central St. Martin's. And over the years, she developed experience in Paris and then channeled her own very personal political views through her own fashion brand, which she started in 1979 and grew into a business that was doing over 175 million pounds of turnover at retail all around the world in the 1990s. What Catherine became known for was championing important causes. She was a pioneer in talking about fashion and sustainability. She was a pioneer in terms of using fashion as a way of championing political causes. And she was a pioneer in understanding how fashion could be used as a platform to voice important messages all around the world. So this week on Inside Fashion, I sat down with Catherine to understand her story and how she ended up building this incredible voice in the fashion industry, and also to discuss an important point that she and I have both been thinking about deeply as of late, which is Britain's impending exit from the European Union, something we all now know as Brexit. As you'll see, Catherine and I came up with an idea that we'd all like you to pay close attention to in this week's episode of Inside Fashion. So without further ado, here's Catherine Hamnett, Inside Fashion. Good morning, Catherine Hamnett. Good morning, Imran. How are you? I'm great. Welcome to BOF HQ. Thank you very much. It's lovely to have you here on a sunny oh, it's lovely here. Friday morning. So beautiful. Yeah, when the, when the sun is out, our office is filled with light. So it's beautiful. Um, well, I'm really, really pleased to have you here with us today because there is so much to discuss. Uh, and I know both you and I are quite passionate on the topic of Brexit. But I'm going to leave that towards the end of our conversation because first, I wanted to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little. You know, not everyone will know all of the incredible details of your illustrious career in the fashion industry. And I thought it would be good to start at the beginning, which is, you know, how you ended up in this crazy business in the first place. Well, it's a hard question to answer because obviously I think all little girls, little boys in my experience were obsessed with clothes from a really early age. Um, but it wasn't really my first choice. It wasn't? No. Um, I'd like to be an archaeologist or a film director. I would okay. have adored 
mean, my parents told me when I was 13, I got to earn my own living, and it came as a terrible shock, and I was deeply hurt. Um, but I just didn't know what to do. And they dissuaded me from being a film director because they said there's no... I mean, it was only as far out. We're talking, you know, 60s, early 60s. They said there's no women film, uh, film directors, and to be an archaeologist, you've got to have a private income, which we can't give you. And so I think I probably started... Yeah, I started supplementing my pocket money, which is fairly meagre, um, making dolls and selling them to my mother's posh friends. Okay. Which is sort of evil, but I also made my own clothes. But I still didn't know what to do. And I kind of slightly picked it out of a hat. So when I was at school, we had a most fantastic art department. One of my best friends was there a year ahead of me. And I said to her one day, we'd hidden in the art department, probably from the history department and she said why don't you come to St Martin's like I am and do fashion I said okay alright and so I so it was as got simple in. as that yeah it was slightly I mean I do exaggerate and say I stuck a pin in a careers book but that's not entirely true I mean I had adored clothes you know we lived in France I was brought up on Ireland Vogue and surrounded by glamour you know beautiful my mother used to make her own clothes all women did pretty well but she'd use Vogue patterns or the couturier patterns and I was in charge of getting matching the stitching cotton so I had visual, very good visual retention from a super early age yeah, and I adored textiles I used to take scraps of them on holiday to the beach take them out, stroke them, put them away again. Yeah, psycho. (laughs) St. Martin's in the 60s, what was that like? Well, it was a shock. Okay. Um, Was it on Charing Cross Road? Yeah, it was in Soho. Yeah, it was the most marvellous situation. It was in the middle. It was sort of epicentre of kind of cultural explosion. The Beatles had their headquarters behind, at the back behind Soho Square. You'd got all the sort of executives of sort of exploding British culture, Terence Conran, the whole kind of David Bailey phenomena that was all happening and exploding around us, as well as sort of better books. And um, 68, you know, the whole kind of student revolt, which I suppose was the beginnings of tempering my rather right-wing politicisation, because my father was, um, he worked in the Ministry of Defence, he was MI6. He really? Was British Defence Attaché. Okay. So you grew in, up in a very conservative household. I mean, totally sheltered. Okay. Um, you know, protected, wasn't allowed to play with the village boys. My first experience of anything working class was actually sitting first week in the life class in the foundation at St. Martin's, being terrified because I was sitting next to this lorry driver turned out to be Harry Holland, who in the end got a great reputation as a painter. And sort of at the break, terrifiedly looking over to see what he'd been doing and realising that he could draw better than I was ever going to be able to draw in my life. Wow. I think that was sort of, for me, the end of the class system, really. Yeah, because creativity kind of transcends Oh, class. God, well, the crazy thing was is that most of you know, because it was free, it was competitive merit, you know, entry... Um, I was the only public school that girl there. Most of the, uh, 99% of the rest of the students were from working class backgrounds, which shows you that art was probably better taught in state schools than it was in public schools. I mean, how things have changed. Well, no, it's just tragic now. I mean, I had to change my accent because I spoke to the base Porsche, and people would laugh at me. They wouldn't take me seriously, so I had to turn it down. Right. Like, 30 years later, I had this wonderful... PA who had had the reverse experience. She'd done uh, Beatles at Martin Central and she actually had to tone it up because she was the only working class girl. Yeah. Everybody else went into private schools and I think it's iniquitous. Yeah. And heartbreaking. 
So while you were at St. Martin's, is you know, every we know whenever I'm spending time there, and I've been an associate lecturer there now for about ten years. Like, it's a great period of discovery for a young creative person. What did you discover about yourself when you were there? Well, just this endless appetite for information and skills, really. Um, it was, we had such brilliant, you know, half a month of history of art. We had the most brilliant, we had Aaron Scharf as the head of history of art. And we had, we probably had two, three lectures a week or something that you had to see. And then we would also have the possibility of studying photography, you know, thoroughly history of photography and the practical aspects of it. Um, learning pattern cutting, how to transform two dimensions into three dimensions is actually very exciting. It's practically Euclidean magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of just, you know, all these extraordinary things that you didn't even know existed before you went there. I mean, the scary thing about the kind of student revolution was that it was quite irritating in some aspects because they're saying, we want to decide what we're going to be taught. I thought, how do you know what you're going to be taught when you don't know, know what it is? I mean, that's right. a mind-blowing thing. You don't know what you don't know. Well, exactly. And so you were forced to find out stuff about stuff you didn't know and became completely enchanted. I wish they could shut up and go away because I just wanted to finish my course and go to Paris and be a fashion designer. So what did you do when you finished your course? I was great friends with this girl called Anne Buck, who's an illustrator. And because I was my parents couldn't really pass the means test, so I had less money than anybody else. Um, I'd established quite a lied my way into quite a good freelance practice by the time I finished. So I was actually standing, sort of got my nose above water financially and having quite a nice time. But she said, why don't we set up in business? And I said, oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we said, we couldn't work out what to call it. So we mixed our names, Buck and Hamnet. It came out as Tutter Bankham. And so this we ran for about five years until we had some major kind of creative fallouts and directions and he brought our husbands in and it was a complete mess. But it was a fascinating education. And I certainly, when I left college, wasn't ready to become a commercial fashion designer. You know, I had to explore, you know, space, hand-painted suede spaceman outfits. Right, very um, commercial. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and I think finally realised I hadn't had a holiday for three years and we're working 16-hour days, seven days week we've got to do something which you know could sell in quantities without any design compromise um or fashion compromise something that would make people look beautiful and yet several people could be wearing in the same room and they'd all look different there's a french expression like mettre en valeur yes which i adore and i don't know how to translate into english bring out the natural beauty bring out the inherent beauty i don't know how you say it but that for me is the magic of clothing and so um, I worked freelance after that fell apart, which is very interesting. Worked in Paris, um, which was mind blowing. I mean, just very run of the mill. Who were the big designers in Paris then? Yves Saint Laurent, I guess. Yeah, I think Saint Laurent yeah. was a dream. Yeah. You know, every trip I'd have to hit that. The shoes. Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> the shoes were so beautiful. And the whole look, it was fantastic. Um, very, it was a very exciting time that, um, to be in Paris. And I worked with people that, like a machinist who'd actually worked with Christian Dior himself. There's a lovely guy there who was about 70 when I was there, and he'd worked with him. just, oh, it's going to touch you as a sort of holy object. It was thrilling. But they were pretty nasty. 
I mean, God help anybody who works in the French clothing industry. I mean, my lot used to refer to the place we're working as the Maison des Vipères. You know, the house of vipers. Yeah, the house of vipers. And I think the clothing industry in Paris is pretty psychotic. It's very like that. Mm-hmm. And they admire each other. There's a terrifying culture. You must experience it. How, you know, there's that word malin. Yeah. Petit malin, which means you sort of naughty little cute thing, but actually it means, you know, a malin comes from, you know, the, the root, it's bad, nasty yeah. person. And they pride themselves on terrifying behavior. And I've heard senior directors of department stores boasting about how evil they've been and thinking everybody's going to think how marvelous they were and applaud them. I mean, one woman told me how. Um, she went up to this guy's wife she, he was having an affair with at some mega function and say, um, your clothes suck and I'm fucking your husband. Oh, wow. And she thought that was marvellous. <laughs> Petit malin. Yeah. Um, so at some point after your experience in Paris, when did you actually decide to launch? I think I was working for this company and there was something going wrong. The boss had run off with the girl that puts the labels on the clothes. It's Another affair? Okay. Oh. And um, they weren't paying their bills, so I got about 17 garments, which um, I wasn't going to send to them until I got paid because they tried to rip me off before. I thought, what am I going to do? No visible means of support. And I thought, well, I'm just going to make them in black leather. And so I did, and um, I think we managed to get into Brown's, for, uh, Robert Fox forgot his appointment, um, Rob, Robert Fo- Forrest, and so Robert I Forrest, went to see yeah. um, Joseph Eshigui at um, Joseph, and... Well, and this they, was they when, say, exactly? This was 79. Okay. And it's quite so honest, look, you know, just take them and sell a return. Anyway, they sold out. And um, they rolled more, and we sort of developed the whole kind of thing, and then it turned into a phenomenal business. Wow. And we showed it in Paris. I mean, it sort of started from my, you know, basement. Um, and then we ended up, you know, showing in Paris, you know, staying at the Raphael, doing the lunatic catwalk shows, having an amazing time licenses across the planet right jeans line japan amazing did the a big five show in about 84 um but in fact there were only four of us in tokyo which was run by the asahi symbol and it's jean-paul gautier um comedy garçon yoji yamamoto me wow that's which amazing was hysterical company. yeah but there were some mad things going on like you know driver forgot to pick me up and i had to was quite fitness. I had to run up 12 flights of dead escalators to just shoot out at the last minute on the show to, you know, to make the <laughs> final bar. 1984 or 1983 is also the year when that first Choose Life T-shirt came out, I think. Is that right? Yeah, we were on a roll and then we were getting so much publicity. And so, so can I tell you a story? So when I was growing up, in Calgary, Canada. And in 1983, I would have been eight years old. I got a Choose Life t-shirt for my birthday because I loved Wham! And it was in that oh, because video. because of Wham! Not because of the sense well, of central to the Buddhist I didn't know what it meant. I was eight years old in like the western part of Canada in a very small city. But um, the, the, the Catherine Hamnet logo t-shirt or slogan t-shirt rather made it all the way to Canada wow but I was as I was thinking back on that this morning 
you know, I realized also it was probably not a real Catherine Hamnet slogan well, no. T-shirt. It was probably, I don't know, someone gave it to you for my birthday. So uh, I don't know if they were being copied at the time because they were actually regarded as quite contentious. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, they did get copied. I'm sure they it was copied. copied but wrong. how did the whole slogan T-shirt thing come out in the first place? I was having an argument place? with Lynn Franks, who you probably know, famous of Abfab. Yes, of course. I don't um, know her. I know but of you know, her. But you know Abfab, anyway. Yeah. And she's very keen on Anishir and in Buddhism, which I'm not quite so keen on, but I just love Buddhism. Buddhism. We had an argument about this exhibition she's putting on to promote Buddhist philosophy, and I said, you've got to do it you know, huge letters on a T-shirt. People can read from 200 yards. That's how you get a message over, not this dingy exhibition you're putting on. Oops, sorry, Lynn, um, at the Commonwealth Institute. And anyway, that was the start. And then I realised that um, there were also other things that needed screaming about, like, you know, save life on Earth, because 30 years ago, 35 years ago, we knew Greenpeace was telling everybody the kind of information we got now. And But... You know, and tragically, those T-shirts, you know, save the sea, save the whales, you know, ban, ban pollution, the plastic crisis. And it's all very easy to say so big picture. ahead of your time. Everybody when it, was, people knew about it. We just said, no, nothing's going to happen until there's a pile of bodies. We got piles of bodies everywhere and still nothing's happening. Yeah. Sustainability in fashion, I mean, I guess you were like a real pioneer in that I space. was the first one. Yeah. Actually. So... And that was thanks to the Buddhists, because they talk about, you know, I mean, I think the challenge is having a great life, which gives you everything you want in the world, but also being a decent human being, because it's quite easy to get that if you're going to be a bastard. But the challenge, I always like things that really tick the boxes, set the bar high, is to try to be a decent human being as well. Hence, Buddhism, right livelihood. And it's only about earning your living without actually harming any living thing, well, harming anything for the good of all living things. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. So it was a combination of the awareness from Greenpeace and this kind of Buddhist bad, philosophy. I mean, we were, I mean, we were being so successful and so badly behaved, and every took the piss, people loved us more, we sold more clothes, and in the end it almost got boring. Mm-hmm. I thought, actually, I'll just do a check mm-hmm. to make sure we're in line with, like, sorry, microphone, right livelihood. And, of course, it came back, you know, from high-flying on the complete design student's dream to crashing into, you know, blood and guts up to your neck and above, really. I mean, what the clothing industry is still responsible for is terrifying. Yeah. Probably your most famous T-shirt was the one that said... 58% 58% don't want Pershing. <laughs> and I know you've probably told this story a hundred thousand times, but for the benefit of our listeners all around the world, who probably would love to hear it straight from you, know, straight from you what, what was that T-shirt about? And what was going on here in the UK at the well, time? Well, um, you know, it was Margaret Thatcher. Um, was particularly unpopular with the left or anybody with any sort of humanitarian principles, I think, because she'd, you know, destroyed education, invaded the Falklands, destroyed the Union, destroyed the industrial industrial north, taken away school kids' lunchtime, or Levens' milk. Um, She'd uh, sold off the public housing without replacing it, and we've got huge problems with homelessness now, which could date back to her. Um, Dismantled the certainly the arts educational system reduced it to a shadow of its former self. Anyway, didn't like her. Uh, got this invite <laughs> to go to the sort of fashion bash thing was hosting. I'm just not going, it's disgusting. Um, at Downing Street? Yeah, Downing, yeah, yeah, 
Downing Street. I mean, it's always nice to see inside those places, but I just thought, ugh. Um, and then I talked to Jasper, and he was saying, why should we share a warm glass of white wine with that murderess, which is perfect. Um, kind of haiku of what it was all about. But then I thought, it's actually a photo opportunity. I could get the most historical photograph out of this if I just knock something up really quick now, and it's about two or three o'clock, and we'd be there at six. <sighs> It was like the Stone Age, as far as printed T-shirts. I had to get photographic, muslin, you know, laid-out type in, photo, in letter set, photograph, put onto photographic mode, stitched onto a T-shirt, threw my jacket on and left from the office to Downing Street in the minicab, which is wonderful. It's a local Essex Express, where you're going 10 Downing Streets. Who's oh. <laughs> <laughs> your past? Like, yeah. Let's go. Um, so... Yeah, my dad told you he was a defence attaché. I was on the diplomatic list when I was 16, so I know that you know if you walk into Downing Street swaggering 50, you're going to go out, you're going to be like, it's going to be hitting um, a catapult. You'll go the other way. So I covered it up and, you know, shake a hand, smile sweetly, and turn towards the cameras to make sure you've got, you know... And you open the jacket there. But as I was shaking her hand, I knew this is the only chance I'd got. I'd be bundled off, I thought. Um, and the cameras went mad. And then she, I felt a bit sorry for her because I'd come in, I was wearing my work clothes and everybody else was in sort of black cocktail dresses. And I was just wearing sort of layers of white crumpled silk, God help me, and dirty converse. And she said, oh, at last, a true original, you know, a really sort of fakey voice as I was coming up to shake hands with her. I actually felt sorry for her, but I thought, well, I'm sorry, I'm still going to do it. So I just went like, yeah. And um, What did she say? Well, she said, oh, you seem to be wearing a rather strong message on your T-shirt. And then she bent forward and looked at it and went, ah! <laughs> like that, she squawked like a chicken. I mean, afterwards, she kind of picked up really quickly and said, oh, we haven't got um, Pershing here. We've got a cruise, my dear, so maybe at the wrong part. I thought, how rude, you invited me. Um, but it was too late, you know. We'd got the picture. I mean, it's like an early selfie. Yeah, I guess. Well, it's, it's, it's like a, a viral it's photograph, a collects, right? It's a collector's selfie. Yeah. How's that? Yeah. Um, so activism has always been part of your... Um, one of the things you really channel through the, the clothes that you create. Well, I just use and abuse the voice that clothes have given me, really. Right. You know, when in the 80s, we were just like, we'd be doing 27 TV interviews back to, well, I would be doing 27 TV interviews back to back after a fashion show. Just like, well, you know, I don't know how much we're turning over, but we were sort of plastering, I was plastered all over the world, and I thought, we've got to be able to put this to good use. Right. So why don't we just slip in some things that really need to be talked about? Because, you know, we're selling out on clothes anyway. But it's funny to think that those few shirts were quite contentious. I mean, American Vogue finally deigned to come and see us in our cave showroom. And they were like, oh, you know, hi, Catherine, all the kind of flutter, flutter. And then they saw the T-shirts, and they spun on their heels and walked out without saying goodbye. Why? And it was things like, choose life. Is it so bad? Yeah. Why, you know? why would they it, react that way? Because they don't want to rock the boat with their advertisers. Right. You know, which is where the money comes from, I guess. And it's the horrible kind of self-censoring that people do. Right. When I try to get those people to wear those Vote Trump Out T-shirts, like the one I gave you, and, you know, they come back, oh, my God, we're going to get indicted. Or, you know, I took a photograph of a friend who's kind of quite high up in American politics, and I haven't released it on social media because I don't want him to get hurt. Or, you know, I mean, that's the other thing, but... 
you know, it's like I was te- always testing the boundaries of freedom of speech anyway. Sure. I mean, yeah, we did jail Tony after the invasion of Iraq, and that right. got into real trouble. Right. Well, not real, well, real trouble, really. Um, so I had a friend whose dad was having, dad's friend was in Steel and was having dinner at Checkers. The, the, the day it was kind of Sunday, it was all over the newspapers, and they launched a special investigation into my financial affairs. Luckily, I've always, you know, I just don't. I want to sleep at night. I don't want the tap on the shoulder. So I've been squeaky clean. But they did find one thing and kind of zapped me a 92,000 quid fine, which wow. was the price of the T-shirt, I suppose. Yeah. But, you know, I wish I'd said more, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so at some point I read that your business by then mid-90s was turning over like 175 million pounds retail turnover. Is that right? I can't remember exact figures, right. but we were doing but pretty it, good. But it had scaled to quite a large yeah, we global business. Over. You were selling in 40 countries. Yeah. But then by 2004, you decided to shut the business down. What happened in that period from you know, being this huge global business to not wanting to do it anymore? It was to do with doing it sustainably. Yeah. Um, because I had, you know, the moment we discovered what was going on in cotton agriculture, which is like 10,000 deaths a year, desertification, long-term contamination of the aquifer with pesticides and fertilizers, you know, contamination of the rivers, contamination of the sea, microbiological death, you know, on small-scale, large-scale collapse of ecosystems, greenhouse gas emissions from 12% of world agriculture. I would recommend that nobody did what I did, but I was too purist about it. I thought, we can't carry on making clothes at the expense of human suffering and environmental degradation. I tried to persuade my alliance and seas to change, but, you know, I got into fights with a denim licensee. He was supposed to... We couldn't get any organic cotton in the beginning. So I said, give 10% of, you know, what we turn over. Let's agree we're going to give it to cotton farming projects in Africa run through pesticide action network that are to do with farmers converting from conventional cotton agriculture to organic cotton farming. So they need to learn. It's not just instant. And, you know, he didn't pay third season, so I went in there with a TV crew smuggled on the back of a huge limo from Milan Airport, and we bearded him with a TV camera saying, give me the check for the farmers. So, you know, that's really rather the end of that relationship. Um, I'm very impetuous, so, you know, the clever person would have phased out, you know, conventional and phased in sustainable. But I, like an idiot, didn't do that. Um, but then, you know, it was a moral dilemma. Right. What do you do? Yeah. You and know, then, I mean, you, you, might, you might be the same as me. I mean, if you were sensible, you'd phase one in and phase the other out. But it's, yeah. you know... It, yeah, I guess you were so passionate. I got angry. I already yeah. fed up. You know, yeah. I'd be going around. Um, since I was the first one, I'd go and see people I bought hundreds of thousands of, you know, bull denim or something, meters of bull denim from, and they'd say, have you got any organic cotton? And they'd just practically bar their stands instead of sort of covering you in champagne and caviar, as they normally would. And say, why should we produce it when you're the only one asking for it? Or um, I was doing a collection with a big Italian manufacturer and they substituted all the sustainable fabrics I bought the day before. I found out the day before we went out the agents. Absolutely livid. And they said, oh, you carry on with this ethical and environmental shit. You can take your collection, fuck off. Right. Quote, unquote. Right. Um, 
So it was kind of up against it. It was a real struggle. I mean, the thing that is, you know, driving this interest in sustainability now is the consumer's care. Even industry doesn't. I mean, the sure. only thing that's going to fix it for industry is legislation. And I've actually worked out the trick, the perfect trick, which is only goods, uh, allowed, the only goods that are allowed into our economic blocks carry the same guarantee or certification that they're made of the same health and safety, labour laws, environmental laws, outsiders in. It stops everybody bunny hopping from country to country on the manufacturing level because normally they do that. Human rights are improved in one country like, I don't know, Thailand and they'll go to Cambodia or Ethiopia or wherever. This would stop that happening. It would mean that the garment workers, outsourced garment workers, are better paid. It makes European-American, for instance, manuf domestic manufacturing um, much more viable. And we need those jobs. We should be manufacturing our clothes from an economic point of view, but also from an environmental point of view. Clothes should be manufactured near a home because it cuts the carbon sure. emissions. Um, and it provides money for the exchequer. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So I'm going to be pushing that I want to actually get it written as a piece of proposed legislation and put it before the you know god knows what's going to happen with brexit but certainly before the eu i mean i pray to god now this thing with aaron banks has happened did you see that i saw that in the news yesterday and they're saying that we've got to stop brexit until we've had a criminal investigation did you actually go through the links in The Guardian about his Russian associations? No, that I haven't seen damning. all the detail, but I definitely was they paying attention to so that yesterday. Suspicious. Yeah. I have a question for you. So you relaunched your business last year, I think. And was it because you finally felt like the industry could live up to the sustainability agenda that was so important to you and which wasn't possible back in 2004? Like, what motivated you to come yeah, back it's now? I know that you could do it. And, you know, I've been to loads of conferences and the terrifying sustainability industry that sprung, sprung up in the last 30 years got pretty sickened. I mean, I spoke at Brazil, I just think, yeah, you're just disgusted and ashamed of your own carbon emissions getting there. And I thought, it's kind of show, not tell. You know, I'm just going to do it and show that it can be done and, you know, hopefully be a trailblazer or a PR for the idea. But it's what consumers want increasingly. And... Um, you know, it's possible to do it now. Yeah. And so we're it having is, a... And it is possible, it's hard. And I think. It's super yeah. hard. I mean, a yeah. major crisis with, you know, the whole microfibers thing, because last year I found really beautiful recycled polyester that you could use like a sort of Curel kind of Grecian drape as well as make bathing costumes out of it. I thought, yippee, this is incredible. And then you sort of looked at the microfibers and thought, actually, recycling polyester interfiber is actually just postponing the problem and it's going to go back into the sea so what the hell do we do Plastic, yeah. so then i thought oh no we just got to do organic cottons the only thing we can do everything else is just super dodge and then i saw that amazing thing ft weekend this weekend did you see it i Plastics. didn't oh, you've got to look at it online it was in the ft magazine it was an article about how uh, China's oh, now taking 10%. I did see that. I read 10 that. 10% of the plastic yeah. that it took last year. And I realized what we've got to do as a fashion industry is we've got to tear into making durable, uh, recycled plastic goods, ingredients, items, you know, clothing, durable stuff so that we can drive a recycling industry. Because without that, that we just going was to amazing. I took a picture of it on my phone because that mount, that huge mountain. Yeah, of that to see. Well, not just the mountain, but just to sh 
Because China's basically rejected all of the I know, and you don't stop piling in. Yeah, like so now it's all going to Malaysia or something. I'm terrifying, yeah. Yeah. as if they haven't got enough problems. And they've got that, so we've got to really, I think, tear into recycled polyester, recycled nylon, look at the great things that we can make with that, design things that can be completely recycled, Circular. which means that they don't have any metal ingredients, so they can literally be chucked into the bin when they're done, but you know they last a long, long time. I mean, we've got things like the refugee crisis in Europe. We've got about a million displaced people you know, that need sleeping bags, that need warm clothing. They're sleeping rough. We could be making, you know, sleeping bags. Yeah. You know, we need to be looking at every product, no matter how humble. And, you know, we can be doing, you know, the most beautiful trainers in the world using recycled plastics. I mean, this that are completely recyclable. I mean, that's one of the areas which is easiest to do. Yeah. Did you see that company, Everlane, has started making... Um, Puffer jackets made out of recycled plastic bottles. It's really cool. You should yeah, have a well look. Yeah, well, you could do that. No, because yeah. you do. You can buy that anyway. Recycle. Yeah. You can get. Um, and people like Thermal make recycled polyester wadding, mm-hmm. which is made from PT bottles, and you've got the recycled nylon. Um, there's, I mean, there's an incredible Spanish company which has now got 400 fishermen in the med- in I think Spain, and they've got more in Greece, which are actually pulling the fishing nets out of the sea and the rubbish, and they, um, this company is taking charge of you know, the destination of these various kinds of rubbish and they're recycling it into you know, clothing, socks, shoes, da-da-da. It's happening. They just need, we just need to plow into that, I think, big time. So sustainability is clearly like a big, ongoing point of contention well, for yeah, you. Well, choose life because yeah. you know, unsustainable practices right. is driving extinction. Right. But more recently, you have taken up the mantle um, against Brexit, which you just you know, mentioned a few minutes ago. And I, I thought it was worth spending a bit of time understanding your perspective on how we've ended up in this situation in the first place. Russian interference has that. Yeah. It looks like that's the latest news, yeah. which is something we suspected all along. So that will explain part of it, perhaps. But there is... There, there does seem to be this massive gap between um, kind of people who've been left behind by globalization and who, who were or who continue to be very frustrated um, with the kind of growing inequality in the country. And it feels to me like Brexit was like a protest vote for a lot well, of them, right? I think, I think you're right. I think that's really frightening because I think it's happening in America in almost exactly the same way. People are sort of disenfranchised by the system who've been pushed out of jobs by, you know, signing China into the WTO or, you know, like Thatcher selling off our oil and destroying our industries. Austerity, 10 yeah. years of austerity. You know, and cutbacks in education. So if you put and these your... people are kind of classic fuel yeah. for xenophobic, exactly. racist, blame everybody for yourself, exactly. hopeless existence, you know. I mean, I'll get shot, but you can get third generation who have all lived, you know, on welfare because there's been no work and these people are deprived of everything. And, and when, when the opportunity came around, you know, 10 years after, or maybe not 10 years, eight years after austerity began following the financial crisis, it was an opportunity for many of those people to say, like, we're not happy with the system. And the, the thing that was kind of 
the opportunity that was given to them to make that protest was this referendum, which was hastily put together without much thought. But now we're in this situation where, um, you know, apparently 52% of the people who voted, you know, voted in favor of Brexit. And now I guess there's some questions around that because of the well, I tampering. Know, but I mean, I haven't looked at There's a YouGov poll and a BBC poll. And I think that it's been shifted from leave to remain. And it's been, you know, it's the dial has been over for months, I think, since, since at least August, that people, if they were polled a second time, would actually vote remain. I mean, there's that really interesting um, thing from the um, Fashion Roundtable, who a uh, body that have done quite a lot of research on the industry. I mean, it's quite interesting because the fashion industry is actually enormous and doesn't get any political coverage whatsoever, what media coverage on its size. turns out like 29.7 billion, as opposed to fishing, which is 1.9. We heard so much more about fishing than we do at fashion. But anyway, that was interesting, but even more interesting, 96% of the leaders and you know top businessmen in the industry would vote remain if they're given a second chance. Eighty percent think that um, the Brexit, Britain leaving the um, com- the single market and free- no freedom of movement is going to be bad for business and it's going to be bad for Britain. It certainly, will I, mean, be. I mean, just I mean, give me one good one good reason. One one thing that is good. I mean, all you, uh, the only thing I can think is that they've built. Tons of housing post Thatcher, and we went all this on this sort of euphoria that they're going to get half a million quid for one bedrooms, and the property prices will crash, and young people will be able to move back into central London at last instead of having to immigrate to Brighton and Margate and Hastings. So, Catherine, if you you know, given Let's get we're serious about this, yeah, yeah it's, given we're in the situation now where we're five months away or less from the um exit date, March 29th, 2019 is the date. Um, we, it's, there's no clarity yet on whether a deal is going to be brokered with the EU. We're still waiting. Um, and even if that deal happens, it's, it's still unclear what the long-term trading relationship with the EU is going to be. What are you, you know, to all of our listeners, both here in the UK and, you know, elsewhere, you know, what are you advocating for now? When you, when you have these T-shirts that say cancel Brexit, what do you want to happen now? Well, I think we have to have a second refer- referendum because although the first rec- referendum was probably the most deeply flawed and undemocratic r- referendum um, in a very long time, I mean, it's extraordinary that no judge or lawyer challenged its validity because, you know, 1.5 mex- million expats weren't allowed to vote, 16-year-olds weren't allowed to vote, they've got their future you know, more future to look forward to than anywhere else. Not to mention that actually the turnout was um, such that actually the majority, no majority of the population actually voted to leave because... No, it's like 17 and a half million or something, and this is what's the population in the UK. And it's an irreversible decision once once that happens. No, once it happens, It was an advisory referendum, so why is this set in concrete... You know, well, it, this is the big it's, argument, it's very, I think. It's very, and people were lied to. I mean, there was this $350 million a week or a day that was going to NHS. Complete lie. People were given no warning of the dire economic consequences. There's no area that you can look at that isn't going to suffer economically and culturally because there's a huge amount of money that comes from the EU that pays for cultural events, you know, universities, 
I mean, freedom of movement will be a disaster for the entire country. Of course, it'll be a disaster for the clothing industry as well. But there's no good economic reason for Brexit. This idea that we can't change our minds is ridiculous. We need a people's vote. And on the table, as Sadiq Khan said, we have to have the option to remain. I mean, the Europeans are looking at it and saying, you know, the status quo of Britain in the single market with freedom of movement, the full member of the EU, is the most satisfactory and beneficial for all Europeans. I mean, why we're careering down this path to hell, I have no idea. I mean, I, I personally can't even take it on board. I think there's going to be some miracle. Um, and we're going to have a general election. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's going to come out and say, right, we will have a referendum now with remain on the table because hard Brexit would be death. Um, no Brexit would be death. Um, there's no solution to Northern Ireland. I mean, any silly idea they come up with. Now we've got a thing where there's going to be no um, frontier or customs barrier between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. So goods can come in from Southern Ireland into Northern Ireland, basically tariff-free, uninspected, and can be shipped straight into the UK. So if you really want to cut out of the single and market, you can't do it. nobody thought about this before, which you is well, madness. It was obvious from the outset yeah. that Ireland was completely insoluble. Right. It's just bonkers how intelligent, supposedly intelligent, so media are driving how this. How do you respond to those people who say... You know, the decision has been made. Um, you know, that was a democratic vote. They're brainwashed. And, They're, how can you know, we need, to, we, need to, we need to make the best of Brexit. How do you respond to that? I think they need to call a doctor. <laughs> I mean, I think that they're unhinged. You know, I mean, the alternatives that we're being offered are so much worse than our present situation. I mean, what's going to happen to the poor clothing industry, I have no idea, because 75% of its components, UK manufacturing, are actually imported from other countries. And, you know, any good business is probably exporting 50, at least 50% of its manufacturing. And it's going to be completely ensnagged and ensnared with red tape, tariffs, delays. You know, fashion is a very, very timely business. I mean, if you deliver into Selfridges, you've got like an hour slot. Your stuff has got to show up in their garage. And, you know, you miss it, and your whole payment terms will be negotiated, probably including a discount. I mean, can you imagine the chaos yeah. that this is going to wreak? I mean, it's just completely unacceptable. You know, it's, I mean, it's, what's so incredible is anybody even could think that this was a good idea. It's a disaster. Yeah. Well, I have to confess, I completely agree with you, but I'm trying to have a balanced conversation here to show that... Oh, dear. Bad are, choice of victim. No, there are, there, are, there are people who feel differently, but I, like you, believe that the original vote was flawed, that there were, wasn't a clear question, um, and there wasn't clarity about what Brexit actually, actually meant, and that there wasn't a clear majority of the population that was actually um, supporting um, the vote because, you know, for most kinds of decisions like this, you know, you'd require like a supermajority or some kind of clear definition that actually, since it is a re irreversible action once it's taken, you know, once Britain leaves the EU, going back in is, is going to be very difficult. So, you know, it's not like, um, you know, although they build it as an advisory referendum they've, or a consultative referendum, they've really treated it like a binding decision. And now that we have so much more information and so much more clarity about what Brexit actually could mean, 
it seems clear that we need to have another opportunity to to vote on it. We've got to have a referendum, and we have to yeah. put pressure on our elected representatives to demand this in Parliament. Jeremy Corbyn's got the perfect quote. He says the only thing that changes politicians' behaviour is something that threatens their ability to get Jeremy elected. Jeremy Corbyn has you refused know, listen, to get behind his, a know, second referendum. I know, I'm heartbroken because I'm a huge fan of his. He used to be our MP for 30 years when we lived in Islington. So I know him quite well. And I'm just like, Jeremy, what are you doing? This is a long game. This well, is people say he's that, a secret Brexiter. That's not true because he actually voted Remain. And he said Europe is best reformed from within at the time of the referendum. He's just respecting the views of the Labour Party too much or what he perceives the views. I mean, I think it'd be really good to take a referendum in the Labour Party right now and find out what percentage of members um, are for Remain because I think it would be very interesting. I think a lot of people have changed their minds. You know, I sort of dream that this, you know, Jeremy's going to come out or this is going to happen and we're going to have, you know, as Sadiq Khan said you know, remain as an option on the table. And we just cancel this whole ridiculous so nightmare that's cost England, you know, must be billions, this well, idiocy yeah, where mean, everything else has been put on hold. Well, this is the, the single most frustrating thing to me is that over the past two and a half years following the vote, the government has been almost exclusively focused on trying to figure out how to make Brexit work and everything else is ground to a halt. So I don't know the, how the, the rest survived. of the world is progressing and advancing and you know, you know, planning for the future. And we are stuck here in a country which we're tr still trying to untangle ourselves from well, this mess. The politi political system here is not fit for purpose. And it's proved it that the country carried on running while they're just talking idiocy and sort of mediocrity about Brexit for two and a half years. Mm. So... My last question to you, Catherine, then, is like, what, what, can, what can people in the fashion industry do to help further this cause around getting a second vote? What should we do? Contact your MP. If you don't know who your MP is, go on theyworkforyou.com or yougov, and you enter your postcode, you find out who your MP is, write to them. It's better to actually send a letter in a hand-addressed envelope because it's very easy to block e emails. But if an MP gets, you know, you've got to open every hand-addressed envelope to find out what's in it. You've got to write to them and say, I want you to represent my views on Brexit, which is our, we want to remain. I pay you to represent my views, not take decisions on my behalf. And if you don't represent my views, I won't be voting for you at the next election. So should we start a letter-writing campaign? Yes, please. Okay, so what should we do? How can we do that? It's, we'll call it the Cancel Brexit Letter-Writing Campaign. And maybe we can draft an example letter. Genius. So all people have to do is copy and paste the text. Yeah. And then print just it off. print it out. And then put it in put an it envelope in, and handwrite the address. Handwrite the address and, and send it to your MP. Genius. Okay. Well, I, I'll, 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 I'm going to write my letter today. I'm sure you've already written yours. Yeah, and I've got another one from Americans on the back of our Vote Trump Out t-shirt. Oh, yes, because we also have the midterm elections in the U.S. You know, happening on November 6th. 6th. Ah, so scary. The fate of the world actually hinges on that, I think. Everything that happens in America, this darkening moment with Brazil, Poland, Hungary you know, the rest of it, that got to vote Trump out. Somebody who said, James Comey said, don't impeach him because it lets the Republicans off the hook. Vote, vote him out, out at the midterm elections. Go for a Democrat or an independent, wherever you are. I mean, 
poor America, it's so scary, it's almost leaping into totalitarian state. And the midterm elections, if you can vote the Republicans out, it'll stop them doing any more damage. And so everybody's just got to get out and vote. And I love Uber because they're what running people free or giving them huge discounts and taking them back. And America, I really admire. I'd love there was more of the spirit of America here fighting Brexit because I hate the word woke, but there's nothing else that says it quite so concisely. So well, that... That is a word that really describes you and your career from the very beginning, Catherine. And I want to just tell you how much I admire your fighting spirit and your ability to continue um, your activism and your campaigning for sustainability, for democracy, and for a fairer world. So thank you for spending time with me today. Thanks to all of you who are listening. If you want to participate in this hashtag cancel Brexit letter writing campaign, make sure you follow everything we're doing on BOF. Um, Brexit has become and has always been actually since the since even before the referendum a really um, important issue that we're concerned about here at the Business of Fashion. And so we can follow the lead of people like Catherine and take a stand on this issue. Um, Stay tuned to our website next week for more information on how you can get involved. Um, There is still time to to make a change. There is still time both here in the UK and in the US to have your voice heard. So um, that's all for today. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode of Inside Fashion. And thank you, Catherine, for taking mm-hmm. time. Thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully we'll all um, see you or hear from you very, very soon. Thanks. Thanks.